I'm going to ask you to turn the Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I know that we have spent so long in the Old Testament. Uh, for those of you who don't remember it, this is New Testament. It's toward the back of the Bible. I know it's on foreign ground for us, but this, this is where we're going to be at. We're going to take uh, the next few weeks, the month of August here, uh, to talk about um, what the Scripture has to say about us being a church, but specifically a church that wants to be a blessing. That's, that's the goal, that's the thought of mine, is to be a church that blesses our neighborhood. In fact, that's kind of the, the thought behind CARE that's we're working in August 20th, our next time, where you can choose to write someone, or just pray for somebody, or to actually visit them, that, to be a blessing uh, in that time. It's also the thought behind uh, what we're looking at, for lack of a better word, just the Hodge Road project. We're looking at uh, going up and down Hodge Road, and uh, targeting every neighborhood that has an entrance to Hodge Road and finding some tangible ways of being a blessing to that neighborhood, uh, whether it's part of the prayer form or through some other act of service. Uh, this is going to be a long project. We're going to start with Green Pine Neighborhood, uh, since that's the neighborhood that many of the original members of our church were, were in, thus the name Green Pines, uh, to start there with them and to uh, minister to them, to pray to, for them. Uh, to serve them in some capacity. That's why we're starting this Wednesday. We're going to have, instead of my normal teaching time, those that will be here, we're going to have a prayer time. We're going to pray over this campus. Uh, that will be uh, vessels of blessings. Uh, the people here would be a blessing uh, to our neighborhoods. Uh, we're looking at August 16th, having neighborhood prayer gatherings, our cottage prayer meetings, whatever you're more familiar with. Uh, you can sign up for that. We, we need some folks who are opening up their homes uh, that we can pray in those homes, uh, specific, specifically in these neighborhoods. And so if you're interested in that, you can sign up there in the foyer on the way out. But that's, that's the thought behind this. Uh, how do we become a blessing? And uh, I think this passage that we're going to look at, chapter 2, has some very specific uh, steps that are required uh, for us, as the Scripture says, to be prepared for every good work, to be set apart. Useful for the master. And I pray that is our prayer as a church. That we desire that. We work toward that. And so consequently, I want to take this this day to talk about that in 2 Timothy 2. Next few weeks we'll be looking at Romans 14 and 15 uh, as we go toward this end. And so uh, we're going to look at verse 19. We're going to focus there and start all the way through uh, verse 26 of this chapter. And uh, in honor of this word, word of God, let's stand as we read this together. If you'll read it silently, I'll read aloud to you, starting with verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself for what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. 
correcting his opponents with gentleness. And God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having after being captured by him to do his will. You may be seated. Uh, this was written by Paul. One of the last epistles or letters that they believe he wrote, he was in prison, writing to a, a man by the name of Timothy, who was uh, one who come along, alongside of him, taught by Paul, but now is a elder in the church in Ephesus. And it seems that at this point, there's some conflict of doctrine going on here, as well as moral behavior. And Paul has just given some counsel to Timothy how he ought to be treating this and dealing with these dissensions that are going in this church, uh, these, this false teaching. Basically, you had a couple men uh, in, named by name in verse 17, uh, Hymenius and Philetus. These two individuals were believing that the resurrection already passed and therefore there's no more physical bodily resurrection that we're going to be looking to. In fact, you don't really need to pay much attention at all to the body and it meant, uh, well, be very loose with how you live your life and your body. Uh, and uh, was teaching this type of, of doctrine and, and Paul was saying, you know, this is wrong and let me help you, Timothy, to deal with this. And as we read this, read, notice verse 19. He says, you know, there you've got these who are in opposition, who are going away from what the Bible teaches and what the doctrine is. Understand this. God's foundation stands sure, having two seals. All right. In other words, these are two pillars of the word of God, two pillars of the church of God. No matter what age, what location, these are true of Green Pines as they're true of a church in Raleigh, as they are true of a church in China. These two pillars. And here they are. One, the Lord knows those who are his. And here he's quoting a passage from Numbers chapter 16, verse 5. I encourage you, if you really want to know this passage, study and read Numbers 16 and 17. It's very helpful. It forms the backdrop of this passage. He says, the Lord knows those who are his. In other words, when someone asks me, is so-and-so a believer? I, ultimately, I'm going to have to say, well, God alone knows their heart. All right, and that's the point he's making. Lord knows those who are his, but there's a second pillar of any church, of any believer, and that's this. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So, from God's point of view, God alone knows the heart, but from man's point of view, this thing will be certain. Those whom God knows are believers, they will separate themselves from sin. There will be iniquity that they are constantly in battle with. And they will never be content with. So, that being said, let me just warn you. When we fall in a practice of, a, of addiction to sin, where we're in this pattern of, God forgive me, God forgive me, and I'm going to do it again. <laughs> but I'll ask for forgiveness again. And we're in this pattern where we're addicted to a specific sin. Here's the danger. The very pillar of a believer is that we are going to depart from iniquity. We're going to separate ourselves from sin. And when we don't do that, it identifies us as those who are not believers. Here's the fear. You may not be a believer in Christ. And you just do not need to deceive yourselves in thinking that you are because you bear a name Christian or you have your name in a church. There are two pillars. God and God alone knows 
every heart, but every believer will depart from iniquity. Now, that being said, what Paul is bringing out is true in this church, in Ephesus, true in our church today, in any church you'd go to. And that is this. Here's the problem. In any local body of believers, there will be within that group a mixture of believers and unbelievers. In any local body, there will be those who are not true followers of Christ, but yet are in the church. Notice how he says this. He uses this metaphor of a house. He says there will be a house and there will be within this one house vessels of honor and some for dishonor. But yet they will reside in the same house. So it's imperative that you separate yourselves from those of dishonor. So that's the picture that, he, that he's bringing out. So what's the solution? The solution is found at the end of our passage. And that is simply God grant them repentance. The solution is those who are unbelievers would one day seek repentance of God and turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone. But that's a work of God. What do we do? What does Timothy do? What, what, do, what do I do? What do you do? If you're a follower of Christ and you're in a church, what do you do? Well, this is where scripture lays out some very specific steps that we're to do if we want to be a vessel useful for the master prepared for every good work. All right. So if we want to be a blessing of Hodge Road, here's some things we're going to listen. Now, when we've got a, a one, one and a half year old fella running around a house, I've noticed that he has no discretion of vessels in our house. He cannot discern between a vessel of honor and a vessel of dishonor. His main discretion is, is it round? It's a ball. If it's long and something he can hold, it's a bat. So everything he sees in our house is either a ball or a bat. It doesn't matter if it's $1,000 or $2. So consequently, every once in a while, I come home and I see him waving the, to- waving the toilet plunger around. Now that's not good. This is a vessel of dishonor. This is the type of thing you hide. You put in closets. You put in cabinet drawers. But you certainly don't leave them out in the living room. All right? But nonetheless, he does that. Okay? What? He has no discretion. And just as, as well as he would take this plunger and play with it, he might also take my toothbrush and run around with it and run around on the ground. I say, well, wait a second. This is set apart. <laughs> It is for one purpose only, and that is for my mouth. And if there's any other purpose, then just throw it away. All right? I don't want what you've been rubbing on the ground, and I don't want to brush my teeth with it. All right? Or who knows what else. And so this is the problem that we have in our house, is that there is someone who does not discriminate between that which is honorable and that which is dishonorable. And it causes havoc. All right? Uh, and it's just generally unsanitary. Uh, so it is important for us to be able to discern the difference. Between the two. And so Paul is saying this. Wood and clay. Gold and silver. Some you want to present. Some is nice. You want to use. And some you want to hide. Now. Notice what he says. In verse 21. Therefore if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable. He will be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart as holy. Useful to the master of the house. Ready for every good work. It is imperative. If we want to be used here by God. If you want green pines to be a blessing, we must separate ourselves from ungodly characters. Ungodly characters. Now, let me just 
state something here. This is not saying that we are to be um, secluded, isolated with our own group. That we are never to partake and deal with folks who are not believers in Jesus Christ. You know who he has in mind? He's not talking about the person you run across uh, in your normal everyday life. He's talking about the church. He says those that are in the body of Christ, that act like unbelievers, that are unbelievers, there needs to be a separation from. Yes, you are to confront them and say in gentleness, Galatians 6, 1 and 2, considering yourself that you might be in that same boat, you need to identify to that person, I believe, brother or sister, this is wrong. This is a sin. But if they continue to go down that path, it is important for the sake of that church, for the sake of God using that church, for there, uh, for there to be a separation that is to take place. And so there's a separation of ungodly characters. But as we, as we keep on reading, you notice there's something else that happens. We see verse 22. He says, So flee youthful passions and pursue... Righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. The believers of, of Christ, the church that wants to be a blessing, there are two main actions that are going on. There is a fleeing that takes place and a pursuing that takes place. We're not just to be known for what we stand against, but we're to be known for what we stand for, of what we pursue. All right, uh, I've got a dog, a 90-pound beast of an animal uh that we uh carry around and uh use on a leash from time to time and and the thing with our dog is he has a a tendency towards small fluffy animals uh there's been more than once i've had to extract a cat from the dog's mouth i wasn't sure what he was going to do but i didn't want to find out Uh, and so uh the the problem with that is i'll be running you know walking with the dog and listening to some sermon or some music on my uh, earphones, and I'm going down my my way, and and uh, there's a cat sitting in the shadows. I don't see the cat in the shadows, but my dog, because he has such a keen smell and sight for such animals, knows it right away. I'm paying no attention, and that dog, when seeing that cat run from the dog, will then go full speed. Pulling the leash, which is attached to my hand, which then pulls my arm and very closely pulls it out of socket. But I don't want to let go because I know it's going to be much harder to catch the dog. And so I find myself being pulled through cedar tree branches. And I grab onto a tree. And by that effort, stop the dog. And I'm mad. I'm mad, I'm telling you. I'm looking around thinking, man, is anybody watching me here getting beat up by this dog? So what do I do? Well, I found a secret. Next time I take the dog and say, we're not walking. I'm going to get my bicycle. And you're going to go with me on this bicycle. And since you like to run fast, let's see how fast you like to run. And I know another desire about my dog. Not only does my dog desire animals he also has a big problem with anybody going faster than him yeah he can't stand it and so i get on my bicycle and i will pedal away i won't have a leash i won't worry about a leash i know i don't need a leash because that dog is consumed with trying to get in front of me 
And after about two, three, four, five miles, you know what? We're passing cats, we're passing squirrels, we're passing humans, and the dog doesn't care one bit because he is so absorbed with just being with me. He's pursuing after me, and he doesn't have the energy to go after these other things. And so we get back to the house, and he collapses on the garage floor and drinks away water. I think, have you learned your lesson, dog? Don't do it again. Stay with me. So what, what am I doing? I am substituting his desires to get small animals with a greater desire to pursue, pursue someone faster than him. You know what the scripture is saying here? He says, flee useful, useful, uh, youthful desires and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. In other words, pursue Christ. You see, if we get in our mind, I need to stop doing, I need to stop doing, I need to stop doing, you are defeating yourself and you're crystallizing that which you're not to do. Instead, it is to be replaced and say, let me seek after God. Now, what are these youthful passions he's talking about? Well, scripture explains this, elaborates this later on. Just so you know, uh, in that day and age, uh, if you were under the age of 40, 40 and under, it, you were considered youthful. Um, and so Timothy was probably around the age of 36 to 37, uh, maybe 40 at this time. And so Paul is saying, those desires that mark most young people, flee those things. What are those desires? Well, Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 6.18 that fornication, which is a sexual immorality, the desires pertaining to that person outside of your marriage, uh, he says flee away from these desires. Uh, this is not something that should be marking you. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.14, he considers idolatry, that which uh, you lift up before God. Uh, he says, run away from these things. First Timothy chapter six, verse 11, the love of money is to be something that we run away from, flee away from, and marks the tendency of those who are young. And I don't think it's isolated, obviously, to the young, but it certainly is a mark of those of us who are young. And so then it also, in this passage, seems to have another dynamic to this. And that is the desire to have the final say. You know what I'm talking about in an argument? They just gotta have the last word. That desire to prove yourself intellectually superior by having the final say. You see this in this context as he talks about quarrelsome, not being quarrelsome. Avoid these, these controversies that breed these quarrels, but instead deal with opponents with gentleness and kindness. He says, don't be the type of person that has to have the final say. Isaiah 5.21 says, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. There is a point where you get to. Where you realize. I don't have to prove myself intellectually superior to this person. I have no need to do that anymore. And you go on. You let go of your pride. And a quarrel. He says don't let that be part of what you do. So flee these things. But instead you think well that's kind of hard. I mean love of money. Idolatry. Fornication. Sexual immorality. At least let me have the final say. (laughs) No. Get away from these things, but replace it with something else. Notice what we replace it with. Righteousness. That which is right with God. In your attitude and in your action. Yeah, I think about Micah. It says, to love mercy, walk justice, and walk humbly with our God. That these are the things that mark righteousness. And so... Let me ask you, is that a real heart desire of yours? God, let me just live in a way 
that you deem as right. Let my attitude be right. And then it says, uh, not only to love or pursue righteousness, to follow hard after righteousness, but follow hard after faith and trust in God. To be and seek those circumstances whereby you have to trust God. You know, you and I both know that's kind of like the last place we want to be. You know, let me just always have my backup plans. But to instead seek those opportunities, seek those circumstances where you're having to trust God. Pursue faith. Trust. And then it says pursue love. Jesus said the greatest thing you can ever do is love God with all your heart. And second into it is love your neighbor as yourself. To seek these things. To desire this in your own life. To say, God, let me wake up today. Let me wake up and let me just know a little bit more of your love today. And let me love you in a way I have not done before. And God, would you give me the opportunity to love somebody today? That is the mark, the desire of those who are useful for the master. Set apart for every good work. So let me ask you, do you want to be the toilet plunger? Or do you want to be the one that God says, let me gladly display you? You determine that by what you pursue in your life. And then pursue not only love, but peace. Are you one who's causing harmony? Are you one who helps harmony? Are you one who is causing problems and stirring up stuff? Flee these things, but pursue those uh, that desire for peace. Now, notice what it says here. Along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now, what he's saying and what he's teaching is not, okay, make sure you love, that you have faith, that you have righteousness and peace, especially with these. He's not, he's not narrowing the target here, okay? Instead, he's identifying comrades. Not identifying a target, but comrades. In other words... Be with these who call on the Lord out of the pure heart because you need them. You need them to help you to pursue righteousness, faith, and love, and peace. I'm a part of a church family because I need to be a part of a church family. I need someone to encourage me to love. I need someone to encourage me to to pursue peace, to pursue faith, to pursue righteousness. These are things that I need all the help in my life. Those who come to be in a church body are not here because they're so, so they've got it together. We're here together because we don't have it together. And we need someone to help us. We need one another. We're a part of a church family because I get to be a church family and I need to be a part of a church family. Do you understand the difference here? If you, if you found a bee out there, you're not going to find that lone ranger bee. By definition of it being a honeybee, it has to be part of a hive. It needs to be part of a hive to produce honey and reproduce themselves. So too believers need a church family. I'm just going to look at this passage and say, for those of you who have been sitting alongside and content to be a part of this time, I'm just going to encourage you and push you further and say, you don't need to just be witness. You need to be with us and commit to those in this church body who are calling on the Lord from a pure heart. So, we want to be useful for the master. We're prepared for every good work. Set apart as holy. 
We need to separate ourselves from ungodly characters and separate ourselves from ungodly characteristics. Now, notice what it has here. Verse 23, he, he gives some instruction to Timothy. He says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. All right. The structure of our church needs to be such that it does not bring out that which divides us. Instead, the structure of our church needs to bring out that which unites us. I don't know if you noticed, but we don't have a church vote on every decision. You know why? Because not every decision is worth the disunity of this church. Those that come before this church body must be worth that. It must be worth that. We need a, a structure that emphasizes this, that, that does not bring out quarrels and useless arguments. And so, as servants of the Lord, we're not to be about these foolish, ignorant controversies. And in this case, he's referring to doctrine that was false. I remember a, we had a young guy in college. He, he was all about studying the, the doctrines. And it was great until he started just bringing out side doctrines and creating debates over these things and saying, well, this will sharpen our minds. And in that guise of sharpening our minds, he pretty well divided our whole college ministry and the college ministry that was down on that church campus, on that college campus. Not every debate is worth it. We need to be careful that we're not partaking in foolish and ignorant controversies that can breed quarrels. And so he says, verse 24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone. And now he's, he's going to give instructions. I'm going to say this, deacons, uh, you know, we talked about this, uh, you guys being presented today, and those who are already deacons. I would say not only does this apply to me and any church leader who has responsibility, I, th- I think this also applies to our deacons. You, as a Lord's servant, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach Patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Let me tell you what's behind this. Not only do we separate ourselves from ungodly characters and characteristics, we must see sin as the enemy. We see sin as the enemy. We don't see each other as enemies. I'm not going to say that Billy is my enemy. I'm not going to say that that Michael is my enemy. I'm going to say that there is a common enemy, and it's not you, it's not me, but it's the sin that's in our heart. Can we unite against sin? Are we on the same team against sin? And so that determines how we deal with one another. Notice how he says this. And by the way, here's a little bit of marital counseling you don't have to pay for. You don't see your mate as the enemy. Okay? Can you see you and your mate working together against the problem? I remember one time this hit me. Julie and I were dealing with something. And I just said, wait a second. All of a sudden it's become you versus me. It's not you versus me. It's you and me against a problem. That's true in our families. It's true in our church families. We're not taking sides in a church. That church cannot be useful for the master, cannot be prepared for every good work, and cannot be set aside as holy. 
There are to be no sides other than sin versus God. Therefore, as Lord's servants, we're not quarrelsome, but we're kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil. You know what he's saying? As a leader in a church, you will deal with evil. Newsflash. Evil's everywhere. Evil's in Green Pines. Evil's in Hepsville. Evil's in Nightdale, Baptist. You name the church. Where humans are, there is sin. And where sin is, there is evil. Alright? Just need to know that. So as a leader in the church, you've got to be prepared to endure evil. There may be evil words said against you, evil acts, accusations made against you. You endure. What does that mean to endure this evil? Well, <laughs> simply, you've got to control irritability. You've got to be able to control irritability. You've got to not be resentful. That's what it means to endure patiently evil. Able to teach being kind to everyone, correcting your opponents, notice, with gentleness. You see, some whom T- Timothy would approach would be hardened opposition. I mean, they, they're not going to change. That they believe these things, and they're hardened in their opposition. Some that Timothy would approach and confront, perhaps, are duped followers of hardened opposition. They oppose, but they don't know why. They're just following someone else. And if Timothy does this in an improper manner, he pushes away those that could repent. But if he does it in kindness and gentleness, they can see the sense and the teaching of the word of God. And they deal with God, not Timothy. You understand that when we approach someone, whether it's your mate or whether it's someone in the church. You want them to be changed by God, don't you? You don't want to change them. That's not the result you're going for. But that's the method we take, isn't it? I got to change this person. If I just, if I give them the silent treatment, then that will show them. Then they'll learn. (laughs) That doesn't work, does it? You want God to change their heart. Now listen, this is true for babies. Do you know that babies will, they'll do a power struggle with you? They will stand toe to toe with you if they could just stand all right i've seen this with evan i tell him evan don't throw down that milk again all right and that's his little deal and i'll make sure he sees me looks me in the eyes and we got each other's attention and i'll tell him just simply that do not throw the milk no sign language and then I'll turn away. I don't keep staring at him. Because if I keep staring at him, the power struggle ensues. It's still between him and me. And he'll do it again just because I'm looking at him. If I turn away, start eating my cereal, you know. Pretend like life is good. Then he's not struggling with me anymore. He's struggling with my authority. And I've given him a way out. I'm not asking that he humbles himself to me, but he humbles himself to the authority. You understand the difference? We can't expect someone to humble themselves before you before they're humble before God. 
And that means they've got to deal with God, not with you. How do you do that? When you oppose someone, when you correct someone, you do it gently. You do it kindly. And you understand that the end result rests with God. You say to that brother or sister and say, look, this is something I need to share with you. When you did this, it was an offense. I saw it as a sin. I'm praying for you. I want to let you know. I'm not going to bring it up. But it's between you and God. Have a good day. I love you. (laughs) And they go on. And it's amazing when you do it like that. You've given them opportunity to seek God. And you're not in their face screaming at them saying, you better change. It doesn't work that way. You let God do the work. That word correcting. It's the word for child training. Instruct, chasten, discipline. It conveys the sense of, of authority. Uh, of one person talking to another for the purpose of change. We take as believers in Christ. The authoritative stand of God's word. But we do it with meekness. In other words. We're under the power of God. Now I'll share with you that the backdrop of this is number 16. He quotes number 16 verse 5. He refers to it later on in the next chapter. That, that passage is incredible. I don't, it's, uh, Moses is leading the people out of uh, uh, Egypt. Going to the promised land. They went to the promised land. And they said no we don't want to go there. It's too scary. So God says okay you didn't believe me. You're not going to go. I'm going to give you what you want. Instead, you're going to wander around the wilderness for 40 years and you're going to all die off, but your children's going to go in and do what I've asked them to do. And so that's what happens. And along the way, three leaders come up to Moses. Men by the name of Korah, who was a kinsman to Moses of the Levite tribe. He was a priest. Him and Dothan and Abraham, two other leaders, come up to Moses and said, Moses, you have gone too far in your leadership. Are we not priests before God as well? You've you've asked too much. And so Moses goes before God. He says, God, you understand the the dispute here? Will you deal with them? And God says, I'm going to deal with them. I'm going to deal with the whole nation. I'm going to wipe them out. And and Moses says, no, not the whole nation. And he he prays for mercy. And so God says, "This this is the plan. Everybody comes out to the tents and brings their censers, which is their, their, uh, their uh, sign of responsibility. And says, we're going to uh, do incense before God. And God will then recognize before all that incense which God honors. In other words, who is the leader that God brings here? And so they all come up. And God goes, or Moses goes before the, the family. And 250 other counselors, judges of Israel that had sided with these men. And, God, and Moses says... Get away from these men. Remove yourselves from them. And some did. Some did not. And the Bible says that the earth opened up and swallowed these men, their families, and all who stood with them, and closed up again. Now the murmuring was so great that that didn't settle it. Then people came up to Moses and said, you have killed these men. And then murmured against them again. And at that point, Moses goes with Aaron in prayer again. And says, God, you deal with it. Moses doesn't pitch a fit. Moses doesn't yell and scream. Moses, Moses doesn't demand for respect. He says, God will deal with you. And the Bible says at that point, 
And God says, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm going to wipe out this, this nation. And Moses again pleads for mercy. And says, Aaron, Aaron, go quickly in prayer. And as, as in go, Aaron goes quickly and pray, the Bible said the plague had already started. And 14,000 people died that day. This is the backdrop that Moses has, in, uh, that Paul has in mind. As he says to Timothy, flee youthful passions. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace alongside those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. Remove yourselves from the vessel of dishonor so that we can be separate, holy, useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Why? Well, notice what it says here at the end. Verse 25 26, he says, look, do this, correct them in such a way so that they're dealing with God, so that perhaps, verse 25, God may give them repentance, may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. In other words, let God deal with them. Repentance is not something we generate in our own heart. It is something that God gives to us. Sometimes we need to pray, God... Give me a repentant spirit. And sometimes when you pray for someone else, maybe family members or church members, God, give them a repentant spirit because they are in danger of missing out on what God wants to do. And you see what happens if you're not seeking God. And listen, this is why I'm burdened for our church because I believe there's evidence in our church of large-scale failure of seeking God. From my teenagers up. Why is that problem why am i making a deal about this notice what it says in verse 26 if you are not repentant you are blind you're drunk on your self-delusion notice it says that they may come to their senses in other words that's the same terminology of may they sober up they can't think straight They don't see reality. They pretend that there is no God, that there is no accountability, and that life is about themselves, and they see no danger. They are drunk. And may they escape from the snare of the devil, having been captured by him to do his will. The danger of not seeking God is that we are vulnerable to the attack, the snare of Satan. And if we are blinded to him, we follow suit to his desires, his passions, which are anti-God. The danger of a church, of a family, of an individual not seeking God is that the end result is that they seek Satan. And they're ensnared by him. So yes. I am greatly concerned. When there are evidences in our church body. That there is not a a seeking after God. When we seek God. His righteousness. His faith. His love. His peace. And we talk about reaching Hodge Road. We talk about reaching the world. We talk about being a blessing. Then we have a church Ready to roll with that. But if we are not separating ourselves from ungodly characters, ungodly characteristics, if we don't see sin as the enemy, we just need to be put on a shelf somewhere and hid because we're following the attacks and designs of Satan. Let us not be a disgrace to this community. Will you seek after God? Will you say to God as we've sung, take my 
will. Take my heart. Take my mind. Bend it. Transform it. Change it. Form it to your purposes. Will you do that? Give me clean hands and a pure heart. Let's pray.